0: Ecclesiastes 8 and 9. Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? As no one has the power over wind to contain it, so no one has the power over the time of their death. And no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny the righteous and the wicked the good and the bad the clean and the unclean those who offer sacrifices and those who do not as it is with the good so with the sinful as it is with those who take oaths so with those who are afraid to take them this is evil and ev- this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun the same destiny overtakes all the hearts of people moreover are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live And afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. This is your lot in life, and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he'd saved the city by his wisdom— But no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is the word of God.
1: It's good to be with you again. It's good to open God's word with you. But I'm interested to know... um, how you're going with Ecclesiastes. Are you over it yet? I've, as I've spoken to some of you uh, in this series, I, I've noticed that there's two groups of people, and there's probably some others in between, uh, but some of you really love Ecclesiastes. I've spoken to some of you, and you, you really enjoy this book because you resonate with it. it. It seems realistic to you. It helps you understand life as you see it. But equally, there are some of you who really struggle with a book like Ecclesiastes. You find it rather depressing, a bit too pessimistic. Well, if you love Ecclesiastes, the good news is that we still have one more week after this one. If you don't like Ecclesiastes, the good news is there's only one more week after this one. But if you are one of those people who finds Ecclesiastes really frustrating, seems too depressing too pessimistic can i say to you that that's probably actually a good thing because that's part of the reason this book is given to us you see in this book the preacher is looking around at the world we live in and he wants us to see its brokenness he want he wants us to feel that dissatisfaction the frustration of life in this world. Because he wants us to see the world as it really is. He doesn't paint a a glossy picture and pretend the world is something else. No, he, he wants us to see it as it is. He wants us to see the world as it is because he wants us to know how to live well in the world as it really is. And so this morning we're going to consider the frustration of this life. We're going to see the world as it is. We're going to examine the things that just get under your skin and frustrate you. But then we're going to see how wisdom teaches us to live in a world of frustration. And so if you grabbed an outline on the way in, uh, you'll see there's four problems that the preacher identifies. There are some other ones. but There's four main ones that we're going to focus on. Firstly, the problem of authority Secondly, the problem of injustice, the problem of mortality, and the problem of unpredictability. We're going to look at these problems, we're going to see how they frustrate us, we're going to see how to live accordingly. But I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into it. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, give us wisdom, we ask now, to understand your word. And give us wisdom, we ask to live well in this fallen world. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the world as it is, to see the way it has been tainted by sin. But help us to do that with you in mind, seeing you the one who rules over this fallen world and help us to know how we can live in it. Lord, do that in us, we pray. Keep us from falling into despair. Keep us from silencing this word because we just don't want to hear it. Help us to know the truth of your word, we pray. Amen. First problem we encounter in chapter 8, verse 2 is the problem of authority, but specifically bad authority. (laughs) What, what do you do when you have a ruler who makes terrible decisions? You've never had to think about that, have you? No, of course you have. You think about it all the time because we have rulers who make bad decisions, don't we? What do you do when you have a king who does whatever he pleases? What do you do when you have a prime minister who makes idiotic decisions? We know that frustration, don't we? What do you do? What do you do, wives, when you believe it's your responsibility to submit to your husband and then your husband comes home and says, I think we should invest all our life savings in Bitcoin? What what do you do? (laughs) What do you do when you're at work and your boss comes to you and he has a task for you to do? Something that you know is a waste of time or something that's beyond the realm of possibility. What do you do? What do you do when you're banging your head against the brick wall of bureaucratic incompetency? Well, here in Ecclesiastes, the preacher has in mind not the husband that you can just go and talk to and talk some sense into, not the politician that you can vote out at the next election. Here, the preacher envisions the situation where you have an autocratic king who makes terrible decisions. Well, what does the preacher say you should do with that king? Have a look in verse 2. Obey him. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. That is to kind of distance yourself from his decisions. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Faced with an incompetent ruler, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is obey them. Pay attention to their word. Don't be too quick to stand against them. Recognize that they have authority and you don't. The teacher says to obey the king, even when it hurts. In verse 6, he says, uh, obeying him may weigh you down with misery. (laughs) That's frustration, isn't it? The question is, why? Why would we obey a bad ruler? Well, the preacher gives two reasons here. Uh, First, in verse 5, he says, whoever obeys his command will come to no harm. If you're familiar with the musical Hamilton, uh, this is the Aaron Burr problem, the position, sorry. Uh, Fools who run their mouths off wind up dead. The idea is, don't stand against the king, because he'll kill you. And there's no denying that throughout history, those who have opposed powerful rulers have lived short lives. Just ask Evgeny Progzim, or however you say his name, the Russian Wagner guy. The preacher gives us another reason, though, to obey the king, in verse 2. He says, obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Now, you see, in the Old Testament, the, the Israelites, they promised their allegiance to their king by making a promise to God, because... Israelite king, was God's king. Now, we don't do that with our government, but the New Testament actually gives us the same sort of logic for our submission to human authorities today. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, "'Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority.'" The reason it is wise for you to obey the government is because it is wise for you to obey God and he has put the government in power. Now, are there situations where you should not obey the king? Of course there are. There are times when you should stand up to a foolish ruler. Verse 5 and 6, the preacher even says this. He says, there is a proper time and procedure to every matter. That There is a time to resist the king. There is a time to disobey. And for us as Christians, that time surely comes when the government requires us to do something that is sinful or forbids us to do something that God requires. But my concern is that many of us try to jump to disobedience too quickly. The Bible's teaching consistently is that our first response is, wherever possible, to obey human authorities. Regardless of whether we like their decisions, regardless of whether they're foolish or wise, the Bible says, obey, submit yourselves. Now, that may be miserable, it may be frustrating, but it is good, because it is what God wants us to do. Now, moving a little bit more quickly now, the second problem the preacher sees in chapter 8 is the problem of injustice. He's looking around the world and he sees injustice not dealt with. He sees the frustration it causes. Verse 11. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. There's frustration. Down in verse 14, he sees more injustice. He says, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. There's few things worse, isn't there, than seeing good things happen to bad people. Or seeing bad things happen to good people. It, it grinds our gears, it gets under our skin, it makes our blood boil. And yet, we see it everywhere, don't we? A little while ago, Janice and I watched Dope Sick. It's a TV series about the pharmaceutical company in America that knowingly and deliberately worked to get their patients addicted to opioid pain medication. And there's investigation after investigation that showed that this company actually played a leading role in this opioid epidemic in America that claimed half a million lives. Now, thankfully, the company's been shut down, fines have been paid. But the billionaire board members who were behind those decisions, well, they're still free, and they're still billionaires and it makes you angry to watch you, you watch them knowingly destroying hundreds upon thousands of lives and they're just living carefree it makes it made my blood boil watching it and how do we deal with injustice like that how do we respond when another criminal walks free What do we do when all around us people are getting ahead by lying and cheating and stealing? I'll tell you what I do. I moan and I complain. I'm sure you do the same. Maybe we try and fight every injustice that we see. Or maybe we're tempted to join the wicked in their wickedness. Seems to go well for many of them. But if we're going to deal with the frustration excuse me, if we're going to deal with the frustration of injustice in our world, the preacher says we need to play the long game. Have a look at verse 12 of chapter 8. He says, although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. You see, observation, you look around the world and observation tells you that the wicked prosper, the evil get ahead. But wisdom, wisdom teaches us that it is better to fear God. One of the best lessons we can learn in this life is that it's not fair. We live in a fallen world. Injustice will continue, but friends, the day is coming when Jesus will hold the wicked accountable, and so fear Him. In chapter nine, the frustration continues. We find the problem—the uh, the problem the preacher observes now—is—is is death, mortality. He says in chapter 9, verse 1 So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. It's got to be the supreme frustration in life, isn't it? That no matter who you are or what you have accomplished, good, bad, rich, poor, wise, foolish, religious or irreligious... All of us die. And even the most optimistic person can't deny that, can they? Death is absolutely coming. None of us will escape. Ever since the fall, death has been the unavoidable enemy of all people. And if you remember back in Genesis, after we learn of the first death, Abel being murdered by his brother, we get a summary of Adam's descendants and you get, you know, so-and-so lived for so many years and they had a son and then they lived for so-and-so many years and had other sons and daughters and then they died. And on it on it keeps going. And then, and then he died. And then he died. And then he died. You could summarize all their accomplishments, all the things they did, all the time they lived, but the ending remains the same And then they died. Friends, if you want to know frustration, then know that no matter what your life story contains in its middle, it'll have the same miserable ending. And then they died. What do you do in the face of that frustration? How do we deal with the fact that death will ultimately undo everything that you have worked to do? Do we just give up now, stop trying, stop striving? Should we pay no attention to how we live, seeing as it makes no difference in the end? Not at all, says the preacher. He says the way for us to deal with the frustration of death is to see that right now, God has given us life. He says death is coming, certainly, but it's not here yet. So take the gift of life that God has given you and make the most of it now. Enjoy it now. Have a look at verse 7 of chapter 9. He says, go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love, all the days of the meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but sometimes, sometimes Christians give the impression that it's somehow godly to be miserable. <laughs> have you, is it just me? And it's somehow sinful to enjoy the things of this world. And some Christians, particularly in the past, but it's still present today, some Christians have taken this to the extreme and denounced all forms of pleasure. They've thought that the godly life looks like eating gruel and avoiding sex and sleeping on the ground and make sure your pillow's made of rocks. Now, that's probably not our problem, is it? I don't think many of us attempted to live that way. Most of us are probably far more likely to overindulge than to avoid all life's pleasures. But let's be clear that it is good to enjoy the things of this life. God has made this world to be pleasurable. You ever considered the fact that God made a world where chocolate just tastes amazing and where sport is fun and where hanging out with friends makes you laugh and a drink makes you happy? God made the world that way. It's no accident that it's like that. He, he wants us to enjoy these good gifts. It's because we have a God who delights in giving good gifts to his children that we can enjoy them. So friends, enjoy them. Share them. Thank God for them. Don't don't act like it's your Christian duty to be miserable when God is giving you good things. Delight in them because you have a heavenly Father who delights in you and wants you to delight in him. The way we deal with the frustration of death is to delight in the God who gives us life. Now there's one more problem the preacher observes. You might think it can't get worse than death. (laughs) But there's one more frustration. The problem of unpredictability. You see, in much other wisdom writing in the Bible, there is a strong link between cause and effect. In chapter 10, we actually get some examples of this. If you just flick over, chapter 10, verse 10, the preacher writes, if the axe is dull and the edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. It's kind of a cause and effect. Sharp tools make the job easier. A sharp mind makes life easier. Cause and effect. Verse 18 of chapter 10, through laziness, the rafters sag, because of idle hands, the house leaks. Again, cause and effect, if you're lazy, your house is going to suck. If you read the book of Proverbs, it's full of sayings like this, cause and effect, if you do this, then this will happen. But in chapter 9, go back to chapter 9, verse 11, the preacher notices that cause and effect don't always work. He looks at this this wisdom and he says, sort of, but not always. Verse 11, he says, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. He looks around and he says, normally if you work hard, good things will happen. If you're fast, you'll win the race. If you're strong, you'll win the battle. But then he says, often that's just not the case. The opposite happens. Time and chance happen to everyone. Life is unpredictable. It's not controllable. You can work hard and pay your bills on time and save for a rainy day and still end up homeless when you get made redundant. You can eat well, you can exercise, you can avoid all the unhealthy habits and still get bad news from the doctor. I'm reading a book called The Nowhere Child at the moment and in it the main character reflects on the death of her mother. She says, In my experience, most people come out of something like the death of a parent saying one of two things. They say either everything happens for a reason or chaos reigns. For me, it was the latter. My mother didn't smoke or spend time working in a textiles factory. She ate well and exercised, and in the end, it made exactly zero difference. See, control is an illusion. You see, we live in a world where we like to think we are in control. When we have a health problem, we expect that we can solve it either through doctors or drugs or surgery or something. When we have a justice problem, we expect that we can solve it through courts and lawyers and all that. And yet the thing the preacher helps us see is that control is an illusion. We're not in control of this world. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. It's a humbling reality, it's a frustrating predicament, it can be scary. Many of us spend our lives trying to fight against the problems of the world, and there certainly is a time to fight. But to protect us from setting our hopes on solutions, which are actually just going to lead to more frustration than the problems they were supposed to solve... The wise response to the problem of unpredictability, just like the response to the problem of bad authority and injustice and mortality, is to receive and revere. This is the consistent thread throughout these chapters. How do we deal with the frustration of the world? We receive. We receive what God has given us in this life, both the good and the bad. We receive it with joy when we can. We receive it in faith that the God who rules over the world is good. And we revere. When we recognize that we're not in control of the world, that's terrifying. Until we recognize that there is a God who is. And so we fear him. We live in a pretty frustrating world, a world where there is bad authority, a world full of injustice, a world stained by death, a world beyond our control. Now we can get angry at that, we can moan and complain, we can live in absolute despair or we can recognise that in the gospel God has actually overcome frustration you see that? In the gospel, God overcomes the problem of bad authority because he places the Lord Jesus on the throne and all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. The gospel overcomes the problem of injustice because one day Jesus will return and he will judge, he will hold the wicked to account. The gospel overcomes the problem of mortality because Jesus grants eternal life to all those who believe in him. And the gospel overcomes the problem of unpredictability because there is a God. There is a king, the Lord Jesus, who reigns as king of creation. In Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul's writing and he says the creation was subjected to futility. He says the world was, was frustrated frustrated. Not willingly, he writes, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We wait for it with patience. Friends, we live in a frustrating world, but we wait patiently. We receive and we revere and we wait as the Lord Jesus, the King over all creation, restores and overcomes the frustration of this world. We long for that day. How about we pray? Lord God, this world is frustrating to us. We see that it is fallen, it is broken, and there is much that is upsetting and difficult for us to deal with. Lord, we live in a world where there is bad authority, where injustice does not go, is not dealt with, is not corrected. We live in a world where death marks the end of every story and where life is beyond our control. Lord, keep us from despairing at this frustration. Help us to know that you are the one in control of it all. That you have subjected it to frustration because of sin. And so while we live in this world, we pray that you would help us to receive what you have given us with joy where we can and with thanksgiving. Lord, we pray that you would give us the ability to trust you when we have to deal with the difficulty and frustration of life in this sinful world. Lord, may we fear you. May we stand in awe before you, not looking to the things of this world to overcome the problems of this world, but looking to you and seeing that in the gospel you have overcome frustration, that you will renew all things and that we will live in a world renewed, Without frustration with you. Lord, we long for that day. Keep us waiting eagerly and patiently. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.